This is Erica in Edmonton. Wait a minute. Is, is it? <laughs> Did I have I it wrong it, this time no, ago? No, you didn't have it wrong. I thought that was you next, Chip. <laughs> Shannon. <gasps> Sorry. Jason, welcome to, <laughs> to Babylon 5, where we do this every week. <laughs> this is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon in Durham. And Chip in Durham. And welcome to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 11, Believers. Welcome back, and or thanks for joining us on this, the 11th installment of our bi-weekly journey through one of our most beloved space operas, Babylon 5, because Chip Shannon and I really do love B5, but we're not alone in that. In fact, we are not even alone here. We have another special guest this week. You may know him from his new tech blog, SixColors.com, which you should all check out, or you may know him from his fabulous podcast network, the flagship and title show being The Incomparable, which Chip and I have guessed on to talk about, among other things, Babylon 5. So welcome, Jason Snell. Thank you Hello. for joining us. Hello. This is Jason in Mill Valley. It's good to be here. <laughs> Long-time listener, first-time participant. Yay! And, and we are thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to have you here. Welcome. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting to sort of be on the other side of the table here, moderating this one, since you are the moderator of The Incomparable and so many other things. Oh, it's, it's, it's different. Fun. Yeah, it's fun. So, Roll D20. Jason, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's critical hit. That oh, Narn is going down. <laughs> I have never actually played the Babylon Five role playing game, so I have nothing to contribute. I'm sorry. It's okay. So, Jason, you are not at all new to Babylon Five, unlike our, our last guest. So, <laughs> <No>. tell us, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your Babylon Five sort of discovery story, and please don't hesitate to brag about the exciting bits where you got to visit the set. And oh, stuff. sure, sure. Oh, you mm. spoiled it there. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> Ooh, I, I hate wait, you. wait, 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 wait. The jump gate. We haven't done the jump gate thing. You, <laughs> you broke the spoiler rule. Do we need a jump gate for Jason's introduction? <laughs> Mini well, jump gate. I don't think so. But well, if my he, presence uh, is itself a spoiler. But also, if he doesn't mention uh, a, a certain website, I'll also be distressed. Well, I don't even know what that means. So here's the story. Um, I heard about this on Usenet. It's that long ago where I was I was regularly reading Usenet before there were like message boards on the web because there was no web. There was the Usenet news groups and there was a science fiction TV news group. And Joe Straczynski started posting about how he was doing this show called Babylon 5. And I noticed, I don't even remember how I noticed it. It might have been on one of those like lists of science fiction TV series that were coming up that there were people who maintained those on, on the internet. And so I knew about it. So I remember I actually taped it when it was on in my apartment in Berkeley when I was in grad school because the, the, the gathering aired um, my first year in grad school. And uh, I remember watching that and, um, shockingly enough, still paying attention to when the show came on the air the next year. And um, because you've you've talked about The Gathering. Anyway, uh, and so I've watched since the beginning. I watched since the pilot. And um, I was fortunate later on. Uh, there were funny quirks about Babylon 5 where some episodes aired earlier in the UK than in the US and back in those days there wasn't anything uh, like BitTorrent uh, people mailed tapes over and uh, I remember I volunteered because Stephen Grimm, the guy who did the Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5 uh, didn't want to be spoiled and I didn't mind being spoiled so he basically let me curate the Lurker's Guide pages for those episodes as they aired in the UK and I got submissions from all the people in the UK and and wrote up in the format of the Lurker's Guide. And to this day, my name is on, I think, like eight episodes of the Lurker's Guide for those episodes at the ends of a couple of seasons where they aired earlier in the UK than in the US. And in return for that, um, people would send Stephen Grimm these tapes from the UK, and he invited me down to his apartment, uh, and there was a viewing party, and that was actually my first sort of communal uh, Babylon 5 experience was a group of like 10 of us sitting there and watching these four end of season super dramatic episodes in advance of them uh, airing in the US. So that was uh, that was pretty cool. And then, yes, um, I was able to go onto the set and also to the, the place that did the visual effects during the fourth season. So I won't give any spoilers, but I did get to go on the sets uh, and uh, and see the guys who were doing all the the CGI and compositing, um, and I still have somewhere I have a Star Fury uh, on my uh, on my table, a little plastic one, but somewhere I've got some stickers that are actually from the art department that they used to stick on the set to make it look like you know signage at Babylon Five, and I've got those somewhere in a box wow. saved because they're official <laughs> Babylon Five art department uh, stuff 
which is pretty cool. Wow. Oh, my God. I'm jealous. I am all kinds of jealous. That is too awesome. And there's a picture of me holding a notebook and standing in the elevator in the Zocalo. So uh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> nice. I was much younger then. Oh, my God. That was so long ago now. But there it is. <laughs> you know, when, when our paths crossed, uh, first crossed, I was like, Jason Snell, that name's familiar. And then I remembered uh, that I'd seen your name on the bottom of like eight Lurker's <laughs> Guide pages. Yeah. Yeah, that's me. Huh. I have people every now and then discover that and they're like, this isn't you, is it? I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> wow. I I am not sure which is nerdier, the fact that Jason has his name on those pages or the fact that Chip, Chip actually remembered. remembered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the second one. Yeah, yeah I guess you're right. I, I, all I'll say is I can still I, I can still tell you the name of my favorite comic book letterer from the 1980s and we'll just leave it at that. Todd Klein. Yeah, I would hope so. (laughs) Because Todd Klein is also my favorite comic book letterer from so. We're all geeks together. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) At least we're in agreement. Uh, Well, speaking of coming together, if you happen to be jumping on to the podcast and Babylon 5 here for the first time, this is what you need to know. So we've got Babylon 5. It is a space station in neutral territory that's run by the Earth Alliance, but... It's home to a large and varied alien population. So shortly after the station went online, the Vorlon ambassador, Kosh, was attacked. While he was unconscious, Commander Sinclair, the station's leader-slash-father-figure-slash-big-ol-hero, ordered the station's doctor to operate to save Kosh's life. Since then, Babylon 5 has gotten a new doctor, one Stephen Franklin, who is a bit of an expert in xenobiology and who has more than just a little ego when it comes to medicine. Uh, we also have Lieutenant Commander Ivanova, who is a no-nonsense, get-it-done officer who takes no guff from anyone. And that brings us to today's episode, Believers, in which Dr. Franklin is faced with the moral quandary to operate and save a young boy's life or acquiesce to the religious wishes of the boy's parents and let him die. He wants to operate, but even Commander Sinclair doesn't back him up. When he goes rogue and operates anyway, it is all for naught when the boy's parents perform what they deem a mercy killing of the demon shell they believe their son now to be. And meanwhile, Ivanova leads a much-needed away mission where she gets to play hero cowboy. So, when we uh, invited Jason onto the show, we decided to say, hey, you know, what episode would you like to come on and talk about? So, you jumped at the chance to talk about this one. I Um, did. On the other... Most depressing episode (laughs) thus far. Thus far. Yeah, There's more to come, say, but thus far. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, on the other hand, I know Chip and Shannon were not exactly looking forward to revisiting this app. Um, so, but Jason, why did you choose to talk about this one? Is it because it's a favorite episode, or did you just want to talk about it? Some, you know, some it is a favorite episode. Um, sometimes I like it dark. This is true. Um, I really like the fact that this episode goes away, steers away from what you think the sort of pat ending is going to be especially now i would probably suspect it a little bit more but back when babylon 5 aired i thought it was really a a bold choice to have um to to put the characters through this and 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 end up killing the kid at the end i mean that's really let's just say it that's a big that that takes a lot of uh uh, courage let's say to do that (laughs) and um you know, I also, I like, as a classic Star Trek fan, and I know Joe Straczynski is a classic Star Trek fan, and David Gerald is the writer of The Trouble with Tribbles. Um, mm-hmm. So classic Star Trek writer was a, a fairly young guy on the staff of of, of Star Trek and, and was around those guys. I, I think I like it a little bit for that reason, too. This is not... It actually, in in watching it again, it actually feels a little more like a Next Generation episode in that there there are very few kind of gratuitous fist fights and things, um, <laughs> and just more talking about issues. But it felt it felt very Star Trek to me in a way, in the good way. And then also, um, I think I liked it because it didn't bail out on the tough ending like um, the Star Trek of the time, the modern Next Generation Deep Space Nine era Star Trek would have done. So. So it's a whole bunch of different things, but I, I do like the courage of of this story. That it, it's also like a classic Star Trek episode. It's addressing a moral issue. It's a question about what you believe and how you honor other people's beliefs and what the line is and where you draw that. And I, I love when science fiction can use um, these science fictional premises.
premises to take us a, a little bit, it's not a lot in this case, but a little bit out of our, our modern preconceptions of issues and make you think about it from a little more abstract area about, I mean, you could say this is essentially an episode about Christian science and, and it's obviously owes something to that, but it's a lot more than that. It is about, mm-hmm. um, about uh, what different people believe and how you respect other people's beliefs and where the line, cro- you know, where it crosses the line into something that's more dangerous that society has to take uh, an Very issue true. with and, and put a stop to. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting that you make the uh, Star Trek connection right away because we got to the uh, end of the cold open, you know, the credits started. So, you know, all we had really seen, I think at that point was Dr. Franklin talking to the boy's parents and Stephen just turned to me and said, okay, so we're basically halfway through an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation here. Yeah. Like to him, it just immediately felt like that. That So that that is a very apt comparison. And he, he made that comment several other times throughout <laughs> the episode until it got to the end. And he was like, okay, yep. not so much. <laughs> So Shannon and, and Chip, I know you guys, We after we recorded the last one, we talked a little bit about bracing ourselves for this episode and maybe not looking forward to it so much. How did it come out rewatching it? Was it as, as painful as you remembered or did it soften a little bit uh, with the years and kind of knowing what's coming? Shannon? Well, this was an episode that I have not watched since the first Babylon 5 watch I did so many years ago um, because at the time... It left me a total sobbing heap of mess on the floor. Child endangerment is one of my triggers. Religious intolerance or or rigidity in religion, I'll say. Rigidity in religious beliefs is something else that sets my teeth on edge. And to have the two of them clash in this horrible way at the time just left me wrecked. Um, So I was not looking forward to watching it again. But... Decades down the road, um, surprisingly enough, even though I'm a mother now, I, I kind of expected it to hurt even worse. But on the other side, I've also, if not come to agree with holding on to one's belief so firmly, I understand a bit more the mindset, I guess it's fair to say. I can understand the absolute fear the, the parents would have felt at having their beliefs challenged so directly at having it having to, to having to debate this over the life of their child. I, I could understand a little bit better where they were coming from, even though I didn't agree with them. Um, and I could also see more clearly the fact that Stevens, Dr. Franklin's position is pretty much a mirror image of what the parents are going through. He's got his own set of beliefs and he's going to hang on to them by God, you know, (laughs) pardon the pun, (laughs) but um, he was going to follow through with his beliefs no matter what. Yes, he was ready to take the consequences of his actions, which is, you know, a positive thing about his character that we can talk about a little bit more, in my opinion. But even though there were no 100% good guys, no 100% bad guys, um, JMS and David Gerald do not give us an answer again, which is, you know, something that I certainly in- appreciate um, this time through watching Babylon 5 even more so. So, you know, over the years, it, it didn't hurt as bad as I thought it was going to. Yes, I did tear up and cry a couple of times, but, um, and in a different place, um, oddly enough. Um, the, when the child was reunited with his parents and Ivanova's watching and she's all happy, like, you know, oh, look at what I did kind of thing. And she doesn't know yet what Garibaldi's got to tell her, uh, that, that coda really got me this time, oddly enough, but I was able to see a, pick up a lot more things, see a lot more nuances that, um, I hadn't seen or hadn't remembered from before. Interesting. So, so Chip, were were you a big pile of mess this time? How did it how did it strike you this time around? It wasn't. I wasn't a big pile of mess. Um, I was expecting to be really depressed, though. Not so much weepy as just sort of glum and dour, and you know, um, making grunting noises throughout the recording of this commentary, rather than just uh, mm-hmm. r- rather than actually participating, because I was expecting to be just you know, bleh. but. Um, <laughs> But I actually, there were actually moments when I had to grin. Um, There were moments when early on, before things really start going badly, where I could see Franklin and Ivanova and Garibaldi um, and uh, Sinclair, you know, and all of them just interacting, you know, as as colleagues and before the 
before things are going to go really badly. You know, that little scene where um, Sinclair, Garibaldi and Franklin are doing paperwork um, and you get the you, you get the jokey little callback to uh, one of David Gerald's novels. But they're just it, it's 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 a really natural episode in some ways. It's one of my it, it turns out to be one of my favorite Sinclair performances. Mm-hmm. Um and then we get towards the end and we see what and we know what's coming and this time this time I was able to handle it but this is also the first time that I've seen it in a long time my son and I uh, a few years ago started a uh, a, a watch through he's 12 now uh, and at the time we started this there was no way in heck that I was going to make this part of the canon cuz he's sensitive and this is a harsh harsh episode and even now, today, I don't know that he would enjoy. Um, I don't know that he would enjoy that uh, the 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 scene uh, for the series one uh, finale of Leverage kind of uh, threw him because there's a dramatic scene where Timothy Hutton uh, cradles his dead child in in a flashback scene, and Will was weirded out by that. So believers would continue to be too much for my son right now. But it was it it, it was good, and it was actually. On balance, enjoyable to watch, even though it's a tough, a tough bit at the end. Yeah, I too found that it wasn't as as much of a, uh, it wasn't as painful to watch as I thought it was going to be. However, knowing what what was coming, and this wasn't my wasn't just my second time through, but um, knowing what was coming, it did make it more uncomfortable comfortable for me watching that one scene where the parents come in after the surgery and discover what has happened that was that was the point that mm-hmm. gave me the most trouble because yeah. and actually just like the 30 seconds leading up to that i think i just i was so tense i was just like balled up on the couch just like waiting for it to happen to get it over with because i knew how terrible it was going to be but but the very end uh, wasn't quite as heart-wrenching as it had been the first few times and maybe just because maybe because i'm old and cold-hearted at this point and and uh that's all crusted over uh, but it also might just be because i've seen it enough times that it doesn't pack quite the same emotional punch i don't know um, but speaking of the end let's let's talk about that how how do we feel about the outcome i think jason you mentioned a little bit that you were happy that they didn't wuss out on that um I'm just wondering if any of you guys thought it was either too bold or just too obvious an attempt to not be Star Trek. I I think there's some spite. I I really do think it's, it is a response, whether it's from David Gerald or it's just, just Straczynski wanting to take the tough, uh, address something in a tough way. I I remember at the time there was just a feeling that Star Trek would not do a story like this. Star Trek would find a a solution that was, um, that made it okay. And in fact, at, at points in this episode, you can see where they're sort of setting it up. Like, you're expected to believe that somehow the parents will either accept it or they'll they'll let the kid live on the station or something like that, <laughs> and uh, and that doesn't that doesn't happen. But the, the outcome is why I love this episode because what the what this if you know, what this episode is trying to say in some ways is that this is an unwinnable situation. You can't get out of it because uh, what every character in this episode believes um, is that it leads to the outcome and it's across purposes. There's no there's no solution even though. Dr. Franklin's belief is that there is, there isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's sort of the soul hunter issue again. Um, and I think there's a little bit in common with these two episodes. Um, as you said, there there is honestly no compromise between the two sides. No matter what you do, somebody's beliefs are going to get trampled on. Um, and, and, there's, and there's no meeting in the middle. Um, I think this is also something... JMS, um, in looking over uh, the Lurker's Guide and things like that, um, he's done this, I forget if it was, I think it was before the Twilight Zone that he did before Babylon 5. Is that right? I think so. Yes. Yes. Okay. So he mentioned, referenced an episode of the, the Twilight Zone that he did where there was a situation where somebody was going to die. It could be one person or it could be 500 people. And, you know, the episode, you know, laid it out that there was no half measure. There was not going to be any way to avoid it. Um, And, you know, JMS pushed through at the time uh, that we had to do the episode this way, even though we got pushback from studio execs that this was, you know, going a bit too far. This time, um, he described the PTEN people that were in charge at the time, looking at it, taking a deep breath and acknowledging, okay, this is going to hurt, but do it. 
And so for, for the 90s television at the time, you know, he was pushing those boundaries that had been set of the easy solution that gets wrapped up in 48 minutes. Um, he, he wanted to avoid that. I think for me, uh, I started watching in the next season or the season after that. So I didn't get to see this until I looped around. But even so, even after seeing everything else or much of everything else, I I really didn't feel wholly that the Babylon 5 universe was real and separate from ours and separate from the Star Trek one and all of the other ones I'd ever ever read or seen until this episode. I think this was the mm-hmm. the moment that cemented it for me that, okay, this is a different kind of thing that I am not used to. And while it, maybe it's not my favorite episode, it is definitely one that's already stood out for me because of how difficult it is, because I don't feel like I had been challenged quite so much by other science fiction that I had taken in before this. And um, and it, maybe I was just choosing the wrong stuff before that. But this was very important for me, I think, as my growth as a science fiction fan and uh, experiencing other worlds. This episode is such a gut punch. And yet, it is still possible to sympathize with the parents which is remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, but throughout the episode, and this is um, credit to the director, Richard Compton, and David Gerald's script, but the parents clearly love the boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are they are sobbing in times. Um, gruff fundamentalist dad uh, breaks, breaks form uh, every once in a while, really loses it uh, towards the end before um, Franklin operates on the child. They are just incapable of considering that their child's soul would survive an operation. It's a concept that comes from current day Earth headlines. I mean, this sort of this sort of thing does happen. People do have rigid religious beliefs that will not allow them to accept certain medical interventions. That this is, in some respects, not a particularly SF null story, to borrow mm-hmm. uh, Paul Cornell's phrase in that regard but the parents love the child they just can't it, it's not within the realm of possibility that the child could be anything other than a demon shell if uh, the child is operated on and it's seeing their arc and contrasting that with you know Delin men, means well I guess but just about everybody else on the station said right there in dialogue the only person who will advocate for the parents is Sinclair. And he does that to protect the station's neutrality as well as to protect their right to believe the way they do. It, it's a gut shot for him to have to make that decision, and, it, and it's painful for everybody involved. But it's a believable moral quandary, and the, the parent characters are almost sympathetic, even right there at, the, at that awful end. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think that they're actually their performances were actually quite good as well. But I, they were sympathetic. And I could tell that they loved their child. However, speaking of painful, I think one of the most painful lines was near the beginning when Dr. Franklin is talking to them and just says, you must love him very much. Like, what? That was, <laughs> Stephen was just like, he's like, that's a terrible line. I was like, yes, that was that was pretty bad. There was some there was some clunky dialogue in this. I, I like the idea of the script and the way that it played out. But um, there was some pieces in there that uh, but before we get to that let's let's talk about the big picture just a little bit more um and and talk about the religion piece shannon mentioned that that we once again we don't really get an answer you know this sort of it does take religion on but it doesn't come down as hard as i think it could have or that maybe another show would have on the side of dr franklin or the side of the parents and we get arguments for both sides as we see a lot in early babylon five here um Jason, what are your thoughts on on the the battle between those two sides? Do you think it's more one sided than I'm seeing? Well, I, I like. I mean, and and you've talked about this in previous episodes. That I like that that uh, this is a show where where Joe Straczynski and Atheist won an award for depictions of religion on television. Right? I mean, it's it's he, he tries very hard to. Um, treat this with respect, and you see it here that that even though he didn't write this episode, he I think came up with the premise and obviously is yes. overseeing it. I like that there's detail about like the great egg and the children of time and all of that because we, what we're seeing here is that this is not just some random thing, and I think this gets missed 
um, in news coverage of similar things in in our world, which is uh, you see the thing that pokes out that causes the problem and you don't see the context. And so here they take a little bit of time to explain, you know, these people are extremely religious. This is true, but but you see that there's the great egg and they're the chosen children and that, you know, they, they only food animals get get opened up and that, that uh, you know, these other aliens like humans don't have a soul to them. They're not the chosen people. And so you you understand where they're coming from, even if you even if you don't agree. Um, and then on the other side, I like Franklin's religion is always, uh, and I think we learn more about it later. But it's always sort of uh, a mystery because it's not a religion that exists currently on Earth. He is he's kind of a new religion. Um, but I also love the fact that at one point it's even the dialogue, very straightforward dialogue, says your God is medicine, right? But that you know he and, and at, a, at another point I was waiting for Franklin to say. Like, um, I will play God now, but he doesn't, but he comes very close that, um, that's, I think that's really interesting that, that Stephen Franklin is representing modernity. He is representing what can't science and medicine do. And these, um, the, these, uh, parents are representing, uh, religious fundamentalism, but I think the episode tries very hard not to judge because Franklin does, I mean, they kill their kid, but Franklin does so many terrible, uh, unethical things throughout this episode that I, I'm not on his side at any point. <laughs> So I think yeah. that's balance of a sort, of a terrible, terrible sort. <laughs> I'd agree with that. I mean, it's 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 different kinds of uh, paternalism and privilege going on here. Um, on the one hand, you've got um, religious fundamentalism that leads to the death of a child, um, and on the other hand, you've got this sort of pr- the privilege of the. I guess the liberal elite, maybe, you know, he's the educated elite, at least educate. Yeah, definitely educated elite who uh, science is all science is everything. There's no such thing as a soul. He said that point blank during the soul hunter episodes, you know, Um, he knows exactly what's he assumes that these aliens don't have advanced medicine, too, which I think is a really nice touch. And and he says, well, we could do this surgery and let me explain it to you. And the parents are like, yeah, we have that surgery, but you can't do it. They they just brush yeah, it we, off. It's like we're not simpletons here. We're, we just can't operate. So yeah, I think it continues the the trend to this point of um, religion being portrayed as a factor in the lives of humans and aliens, and it sets up a conflict between religion and science. And and it's a uh, it's a power struggle. It's a power struggle between the parents and the doctor, and the kid loses. And Shannon's. Shan- Shannon, you said that that child endangerment and the you know sort of strict religious fundamentalism are sort of your triggers. So how did how did those things play out for you? Well, again, knowing knowing what was coming many years later, a little bit more worldly experience, so um, it didn't hit me quite as hard as it did before. Um, and this time, you know, like I said, this is you know the second time in a long time in watching it and having watched some of our watched our previous episodes with a more analytical eye because of this podcast, um, I was able to pick up on a lot more things than I did before that helped enrich the story, essentially. Um, as you said, the religious fundamentalism is not cut and dried cardboard caricature. Um, there are nuances, there are justifications, I guess. Um, there's also just the fact of this culture, the Babylon 5, Wikia calls it the Antine. That's not from the Lurker's Guide, but um, th- that is a name that is uh, given on the Wikia, that there are lots of nuances that I noticed. The uh, the fact that the apparently the women are the ones who communicate to the outside world mm. first. The, the, the woman, the mother comes up and says, you know, May, may my husband's, you know, she's the one who makes the request. May my husband speak to you frankly, um, allowing his feelings to show through. Apparently, the men are not supposed to communicate feelings at all. And she has yeah, to make actually, the request. And um, I even noticed later that, you know, the Commander Sinclair says, I wish you had an ambassador here. I would her, ask her for guidance. Yes, yes. The fact that apparently if they were to have an ambassador, it'd be a woman. Um, so these nuances that show up are really interesting. And what caught me even more in focusing on uh, on the John, the child, there are some scary implications in uh, in his character. Uh, the fact that he's such a smart child, 
it had me thinking in terms of did he agree to the operation or did did Franklin ask you know did Franklin ask him uh, Sinclair asked him whether or not you know what what his opinion was and the boy frankly said I, I don't want to die but I don't want to upset my parents either essentially uh, he, he, yeah. he literally said he didn't want the operation. Yeah. And I think that that indicates and, – and the kid was just in in worse and worse shape up until the point where he um, gives the industrial goo back to uh, Franklin. Um, you know, so I think it's I, – I, I can't imagine any other scenario than the kid's unconscious, the kid's going to die in an hour. Franklin ignores the kid's wishes, just like he ignored the parents. But then, to take it a step further, the kid wakes up from the operation. He doesn't feel any different. He's, it's you know, he's like this somewhat of an epiphany to start questioning, you know, if, even in, a, in the smallest way. What if mom and dad were wrong? I mean, it doesn't look like I've lost anything. I feel the same me that I felt before. But then the reaction well, of his parents is so so I, shocked so hostile so terrified you know and and you know franklin is trying his best he's taking the consequences he is holding that child for all he's worth trying his best to offer him support because he's done this thing and he's willing to own to it but what was there a point could could john have chosen to say, you know, once his parents came to pick him up, what if he had said to a medical staff person, no, I want to stay here or I want Dr. Franklin? He knew what was coming. He knew what his parents were going to do if he went with them. And he did. And and I have to wonder if he was making that sacrifice in order not to disturb his parents' beliefs because he didn't think he could change their minds. There's just so many possibilities possibilities to this, to think about this yeah. time. I didn't read it that way. I read it as though um, when the child's come out of surgery, uh, Sean is really sullen. Mm-hmm. He is really clipped. He's, uh, you know, I, I want to see my mother. I want to see my father. You know, he is, he is for all the world acting as if he believes he's lost his soul. And then his parents come in and hope suddenly comes up because, you know... His his mother and father are there. He calls them the equivalent of mama and daddy, and you know, and then they react, and then, you know, his hope is dashed. So I think that he believed the tenants up until that, except for that one moment when they come in in, in the door, and he's hope. I think he believes that he's already dead. Hmm. I I think I kind of read it Shannon's way a little bit more. Um, because it, it just the one line earlier when he said, but I don't feel any different inside. Like he thought that he should feel different because he thought he had lost his soul, but he doesn't feel any different. So he realizes, well, I guess maybe I didn't. And then he's just confused and doesn't, you know, he's very at sea. So that was why I read the, the clipped and sullenness was just because he was so, so confused about things. And then by the time his parents showed up, he had had time to think it out and was kind of like, hey, mom and dad, guess what? Things are actually okay. I'm, I'm me. And and then they freak out. And I, I, I did actually have sort of the same thought process, wondering if he did just care for his parents so much um, and, you know, and maybe believe the tenants a, a little bit enough. He was still uncertain enough that he was willing to just kind of go along with them, which made me kind of go, OK, listen, parents, if <laughs> if this is a real demon, why is he going to be following you along and submitting to his own death? Clearly, this yeah. is just your son. Ooh, yeah, let's that, not that show that scene. Although I think you're both, I think uh, all of the interpretations are valid. I think this episode tries to have it both ways. I think that I, mm-hmm. I think this is actually one of the stranger things in the episode is his his demeanor when he first comes out is at either trying to let us wonder if perhaps he has lost his soul or is suggesting mm-hmm. that he's given up hope and thinks that it's all over. And then he does flip over and suddenly be like, "Look, I'm fine." And I never really could connect those two things. I, I feel like it's the episode's trying to play with us a little bit to get us to think one way and then head fake the other way it is something else i noticed i apologize um that chip and i both noticed watching it this time around when franklin and dr hernandez are beginning to operate franklin clinically says by the way the incision in this particular race may cause a a spurt of liquid or a a, a, you may see some steam rise or you know a spurt come out and you know what physical manifestation Tossing, you know, tossing Uh that out there to make us think, whoa, wait a minute. You know, if he can observe that, 
maybe you know maybe there's something to the religious aspect of this that, right or or maybe I mean, that's where the religious uh belief we, came from right, right? exactly true but but we have seen little wispy things coming out of soul globes we have. Uh, in uh, Soul Hunter before. So, I mean, yeah, I think this episode does try possibly too hard in some places to make, make us feel, uh, to make every possible interpretation possible. <laughs> I, I, but, I, um, yeah. uh, I had a couple things, I mean, while we're here that I wanted to throw out there. One is just a note, which is um, the, the boy is named Sean, which is also David Gerald's son's name, and he ended up writing the book The Martian Child, which got made into a movie with John Cusack about adopting a, a sort of troubled child. So I think that David Gerald put some of his soul into this episode and naming the child after his son. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, Joe Straczynski picked him is that he had just adopted this boy and and uh, David Gerald was uh, thinking about being a parent. But I also wanted to mention there's a beautiful um, moment where uh, Sinclair talks to Sean and says... Um, and we can talk about Sinclair in a bit. I, I know we have to do what you guys like to do, which <laughs> is check in about Sinclair. But um, he talks to Sean and says... Uh, and uh, and the, mentions the Gloppet egg, and Sean says it's actually just industrial goo. But don't tell Doctor Franklin because right. I don't want I don't want him to believe it. And this is the for me this is like the moment of the episode because the boy knows enough to not question someone else's belief just because he knows it's not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the boy knows this. He knows it already. Sean knows that this is the case. And not only that, but of course, it's, he says it's an egg and it's egg symbolism because everything in their yep. religion is egg symbolism. It's like, oh, my God. But that's the moment where Sean cares enough about this stranger, uh, Dr. Franklin, to warn Sinclair not to ruin his his belief, even though he knows it's false, which sort of places him above um, lots of other characters in this episode, I think. And and then in the very next scene, Sinclair's walked back into the room with with Franklin, and the first thing that Sinclair says is smart, smart kid. kid. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Well, speaking of other characters that he this child is, is a bit above, um, let's talk about Doctor Franklin just for a little bit. And we've talked about how you know oh, d- d- science is his god, medicine is his god. Um, do we think that this uh, fits into his character? Has he been written up to this point? And and by the end, has he actually like he he says he he learned something about his arrogance? But does it seem like it actually stuck, or does he just seem chastened? I think there there's a, something there's a lot to that. What I appreciate is that at least two things: uh, one, that Franklin is willing to try and compromise. He he tries his best to buy time. The other doctor chews him out for coming up with this, well, maybe we can do this treatment thing. And he bluntly, you know, responds, I'm buying time. I'm buying time to see if I can convince them that the operation is the only way that that will work and will they let me do it. Um, he goes through the legal channels um, that he's got. He exhausts those options um, all the way up to um, trying to get Sinclair to um, give him the authority to do it. Uh, and he says several times that he's willing to take the consequences for his actions. He knows that he, he knows that going ahead and operating on Jean is going to be seen as wrong in a lot of quarters, including possibly Sinclair's politically. He has already packed his bags. He says bluntly mm-hmm. when he tells the other doctor that, you know, he's about to operate that, and she's like, you know, they'll, they'll kick you out. I've packed. He's willing to do that in order to save this child's life. Um, he is willing to offer his resignation. When, when the boy collapses after his parents reject him, you know, Franklin is right there. He is willing to do everything he can to try and comfort that child. Um, in another scenario, I, I think it's conceivable that, you know, if the parents had, instead of killing him, abandoned him on the station, that Franklin would have done his best, if not adopted the kid himself, he would have seen to it that he was placed in a happy home. So that somewhat mitigates for me his stance, even though he is, yes, stomping all over um, the religious fundamentalism of the parents and refusing to even consider for a minute that they might be right. On the other hand, he's willing to follow through. And, and for me, that somewhat mitigates his stance. 
I, I agree that, that it, he sort of swung back and forth a little bit for me. But then at the end, when the parents come and say, you know, they're, they're, here's his, his robe for going on the journey and, and we're going to take him. The look on Franklin's face is the smuggest I think I've seen anybody on this entire history of this show. And I was just like, oh, you kind of oh, lost some points that's with true. me right there. That's true. <laughs> it's so it's yeah. so bad. And, and the line, too, with like... Uh, He's like you. I I, I win, and and, and yeah, Sinclair says, pre- "Check the temperature in hell first, right?" Yep. The, 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 I think Franklin's behavior starts out bad at the very beginning because you know he says, "Oh, you're going to be the fine," and they're like, "Hey, you don't know he's going to be fine." Mm-hmm. And 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 the the mother like admonishes him immediately. Like, what are you doing? Telling this kid things that may not be true. But he's so arrogant that he just I'm going to cure everything, and and then it gets worse. I mean. He starts out in a really bad place. I think he does get redeemed to at least a certain extent at the end because he's so shocked with what by what happens at the end. But he he re- recommends it's a funny line: emollients and microbeams. <laughs> um, and I'm sitting there thinking that sounds like BS to me. And then they go outside into the corridor, and Hernandez, I guess, Doctor Hernandez, turns to yes. him and was like, em- "Emollients and microbeams." <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah, well, it won't work, but uh, you know, then the parents will realize we have to do surgery." And it's like that's that's like malpractice. He's he's just going through like the motions here in order to get the parents to be manipulated into doing uh, what he won. They, they, they say, oh, well, he wouldn't have survived to another place. But, you know, Franklin took that out of their hands and, and gave them this false hope so that he could manipulate them into doing. I, I think it's unforgivable. And actually, if we go step into reality, um, I don't I, I just don't see how Sinclair cannot fire him at the end of the episode. And he doesn't because he's on the cast and he's got to be in the show. But I mean, when he when when he asks Sinclair for approval and Sinclair says no, and he does it anyway, operating on a child without the parents consent. Oh, my God, he should get thrown. He should get thrown in jail, probably. And I, I sympathize with what he's doing. But, you know, direct order operating on a child. It's like it is as bad as it gets. And it actually stretches uh, credulity for me a little bit that he that Sinclair it's like ah well next time <laughs> you you <laughs> learned your lesson <laughs> you know and dr hernandez even says that the you know the emollients and the microbeams it's not just some stopgap measure she says you're torturing the patient with remedies that won't work so these yes. are things that are going to be uncomfortable for him which makes it even worse yeah i do see a bit of a through line here between this and his ambition in infection mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. he's Season one, Franklin, to this point, uh, is about swagger. He is young and he is good and he's he's a man of principle who's uh, hopped around a lot of spaceships uh, and things like that, seen lots and lots of things. But he's not so wise and enlightened that he isn't out to make a name for himself. He wants to go down in history. And it's it's clear arrogance. It's clear hubris. It's clear pride. And he... Falls. You know, and, and he falls. And, and But worse than that, it's, you know, he's not the one right. who really falls. It's Sean mm-hmm. who falls. And um, that makes that makes the end of this episode a little hard for me to sympathize with Franklin because he's sitting in the Zen garden feeling sorry for himself and feeling remorseful and all that stuff. But, you know, he, he's stomped all over um, um, two people's religious beliefs. He's perform malpractice on a child uh, a child a child is dead in the worst kind of torture you could imagine emotional mm-hmm. torture um at the hands of the child's parents that was less kind in some ways than if if, if the operation had never happened natural death mm-hmm. yeah boy not a good not a good franklin uh, I, I wanted to mention there's a funny moment too um My wife and I, when we're watching shows, will often yell at the TV, don't you watch your own show where there's like uh, characters (laughs) don't realize that that, that they're in a show that has these rules. And uh, there's a great moment between um, Sinclair and Franklin where um, Sinclair's like, well, you know, I don't want to interfere and all of that. And they they have their beliefs. And, uh, And Franklin says, aha. But in the pilot episode, you had the guy who was here before me operate on Kosh. And and, I, and and when it cuts back to Sinclair, I'm sitting there thinking, damn it, you weren't in that episode. How did I, I didn't know you watched it. <laughs> it's like literally, it's like, I thought you didn't see the pilot, Franklin. You weren't in the pilot. But but Franklin brings it up. He's like, ah, I watched it on DVD and I know that that happened. So you're going to let me operate on this guy. I've been briefed. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, yeah. though. And also it's like, hey, yeah, remember the pilot? We kind of don't talk about yeah. it. but. Here's a direct reference to to what Dr. Kyle does with Kosh in, in The Gathering. 
Yeah, and and this is another thing that I like about this episode is that Sinclair makes the decision makes this different decision here for a couple of reasons. For one thing, I think he's respecting the religious beliefs of the parents. Whereas in uh, Kosh's case, this wasn't about religion or anything else. wasn't taking advantage of a lesser species, or it was it was just pure pure urgency of the situation and saving the life of um, uh, an important dignitary, a character of rank and status uh, with this uh, far with this far flung empire. But he doesn't make the same decision this time for the religious reasons and also for the the further both times he he decides to further the mission of Babylon five. But it's it does feel a little hollow. And you can sympathize with Franklin when he's shocked that Sinclair won't make the same decision a second time. And that's Sinclair as a politician mm-hmm. whose personal principles get in the way of doing the expedient thing. Either decision would have been defensible. But this makes Sinclair feel all the more real for me because he's making what almost seems like a weak decision. He, he seems like a politician, and Franklin's got all the juice in that scene from here on out, up until the end when it all falls apart, and maybe Sinclair was right to be measured all along. I will I agree with is- you that, that that I did like that decision from Sinclair. I, I appreciated it, and I thought it worked very well for the character. However, that scene itself didn't work so great for me because I felt like uh, Franklin was doing a great job performance-wise, and we had intense Sinclair again, and that is just my least favorite oh. Sinclair. Yeah. See, just, I'm... It, I- I'm so with you on Sinclair. Actually, I'm not. A, I'm, I'm Erica. I'm sort of with you on the. I don't think Sinclair, performance-wise, is that great. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Chip. Um, but, <laughs> but, okay. but I think this is a I great Sinclair episode. I actually watched this and thought, oh, I like this Sinclair. I like it because he does. He has a scene with Ivanova that I think is kind of nice. There's a really nice scene mm-hmm. with Sinclair and and Garibaldi where they're eating. Um, yes, mm-hmm. and, and it's like they're they're it's a it's, just, it's really good character stuff and dialogue, and I feel like Sinclair is like navigating tr- troubled waters, and he says to Franklin, "Look, if this was just me, I'd tell you to do it, <laughs> but I can't <laughs> do it. I can't because it's my job to to do it." And at the end, he says, "Just don't ask for permission next time," which also <laughs> is like, "Whoa, what is that about?" And so I, from this episode, I was like, "This is good Sinclair. This is like the kind of Sinclair I like, where I feel like he's there. The, he there's the guy and the job, and that and that he struggles with." it and yet they're also he's got connections with his people and they're loyal to him the scene with Ivanova the b-plot is totally pointless here but uh the scene with Ivanova (laughs) where she basically begs him to let her go by not Mm -hmm. begging him and he gets it and he's amused and he smirks and I I don't know I I I came into this being like all right Sinclair here we go and I I was kind of delighted at at him uh in this episode I thought he was really uh good I actually do have down that that scene between him and Ivanova. I actually wrote that his reaction is actually kind of awesome, and I use the word awesome to describe yeah. Commander Sinclair. So, Woo! so I, I agree because when she's when she's going one of us, one up. Okay, when she's going off on her far. little rant, like his face is just priceless. I mean, that is some of the best reaction acting. You know, no words, just he's just like, "Yep, I get it." You know, mm-hmm. and, it's and then he just, says, like, I, "I have an idea." Ah. I I just I I felt it so much like that was wonderful but but then by the end of the scene though he had lost me again because mm-hmm. when he started talking and and being a little bit more over the top uh, again it just it didn't do it for me but then again I liked the scene with him and Garibaldi eating that was fine it th- this had more good Sinclair scenes I think than than bad but but the the intense ones it just it swings so much that it it, it tends to lose me it's like I I, I slip off the swing at that point. I'm going to have to make one of those meme gifs for you. Sinclair intensifies. Just like <laughs> it's Capaldi it's intensifies. that wide-eyed yeah. acting, which just does not work for me. Wide, opening your eyes wider doesn't make you look any more actually intense. It's just weird. <laughs> anyway, that's that's what I have to say about that. All right. Well, we've been going for a while. Does anybody... Uh, I think this will be kind of light on the spoiler space, so I think that's okay. Um, but does anybody even want to talk about the B-plot? I mean, should we demote this to a C-plot or D-plot because it's just so slight? Um, I do like how um, Ivanova, we've seen Ivanova come out of her shell in non-working situations, mm-hmm. but this is the first time that I feel like 
Ivanova has just sort of come into her own uh, in terms of having a personality that is separate from the uniform. Because when she when Sinclair overlooks her and goes straight to thinking about sending Garibaldi out for the um, escort run. And then she goes through the routine. I'll just sit here. I'll just stand. I'll just walk in back and forth in front of my head. Fro and two for variety. Where's my knitting? That (laughs) that is hysterical. That is hysterical. It's 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 not played over the top. It's it's I think I think it's Claudia Christian finally finding her home in a scene that doesn't have any high stakes to it she's not uh date she's not on a date with a guy who's going to turn into uh um uh, xenophobe she's not going to be drunk at the table in um parliament of dreams this is just her being her and what we discover is she's fun and she's funny and i love it and and that scene alone is good enough for me to make up for the fact that the escort scene is just kind of there, you know, I remember on the internet point, point it, it it just breaks it up. It it just breaks it up. It's like it's like those little uh, sequences uh, in between um, before and after the commercials when you're watching Transformers as a kid. <laughs> the Transformers <laughs> will continue. This is the Babylon Five will continue. Zip 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 zip. Now back to the melodrama. They uh, yeah. there was a there was a conspiracy theory actually right when this episode aired that that uh, Ivanva secretly is working with the Raiders because we see her see the Raiders and then later they fly back and we don't see what happens in between and i remember that uh even joe straczynski even posted something that was like no we just didn't show it and it's like well yeah you didn't show any of the interesting things from this plot at all (laughs) there's nothing there (laughs) yeah frankly to me it felt like the entire thing had been almost set up for for that last scene to create that poignant poignant ending of uh when the little boy comes out from the ship they were escorting that was in danger and he's reunited with his family um it almost felt like the whole b plot was kind of written to set that little bit up at the end just as a little extra knife thrust um but i did love love the start of it with her and um sinclair Mm -hmm. and once again this is B5 doing well by female characters. Yes. Um, Ivanova um, asserting herself and getting her turn uh, to be the jet jockey. The um, the subordinate doctor who won't back down for anything. You know, she I, she is uh, she's a great character. And, and again, there's um, nothing particularly feminine about her. They, they could have gone schmaltzy mm-hmm. and had her be all mothery about this poor darling child who's so ill and what can we do? They don't do that. She is a doctor first and foremost. And it doesn't matter if she's a man or a woman. She's that, that her point of view is that of um, a contrasting doctor. Delenn gives the most mature denial of any of the ambassadors. Mm-hmm. And um, and, uh, and the- Sean's mother Mola um, is she and she and Tharg have somewhat traditional male female roles in the relationship, but she is the spokesperson. And I don't know if that's you know being put forward as the spokesperson because um, the man is too good to speak directly, or if she like like with the reference to the ambassador there is a bit more of a matriarchal lean in their culture not but she is not a simpering uh subordinate wife she is right there making the same decisions that her husband is so it's, a, it's it, this is a this is another good episode for strong female it's a good actress too this is the woman who played the the captain of the enterprise c in yesterday's enterprise and i, I kept staring at her thinking oh i know this actress and and she's got that kind of uh uh weight to her that you know she's she's yeah she's she's a fully formed character here and i like that i like this actress and she gives as good as she gets the whole and way through. and she she turns up again um she actually has a pretty big role in uh the in the beginning movie yeah prequel so not of which no. we will not speak because even though it's a prequel yes, yes but but we get <laughs> to like, see her we, we get to see her without makeup in that one mm-hmm. nice well that is something spoilers <laughs> you, you 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 outed her as a human <laughs> yes she's she is an actual actual human i'm trisha o'neill real person sorry to mm. spoil it for you guys <laughs> um but I guess, unless you guys have something last minute to add, that that may be a, a good place to, to leave off, speaking of, of spoiler things, um, to talk about future 
homework that you guys have to do for next time. Well, have to if you choose to. And that will be the episode Survivors uh, that we would like you to check out because we will be before we next meet. And in the meantime, also, please do check us out online. Come and find us at B5 Audio Guide on Twitter and Tumblr and also B5AudioGuide.com. And we will have some some threads online. You can talk about the episodes using either spoilery knowledge or non-spoilery knowledge. We've, we've got a space for you new folks. And I know there are some of you out there and you've been very, very quiet up until now. So please do come and join us. And, uh, and let us know what you're thinking, because we are very curious about the reactions of people who have not been through this yet. Yeah, it's not like there's a homework. It's not like there's a participation group, no, no. but there is a participation group. <laughs> Chip, will be, Chip will be judging you. So there's, there's your grade. <laughs> Jason, where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, well, you can find my uh, podcasts about things that people who listen to this podcast might like at theincomparable.com, including the eponymous Incomparable podcast, which Erica is on often and Chip is on slightly less often, but more and more as time goes by. And uh, I write about uh, computers and technology and stuff at sixcolors.com. And uh, I have a, uh, a couple of podcasts on relay.fm that you can check out as well. You're all over the place. A media mogul. Yes, very, very slowly becoming one. So uh, thanks for the support. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with that, uh, we are going to now wave a, a fond farewell to all of you folks who are watching Babylon 5 for the first time and don't want to be spoiled about what is to come. So we're going to say adios as we hit the jump gate. And we are back on the other side of the jump gate firmly in spoiler space where we four can talk are about angels. four lines are angels <laughs> <laughs> sorry uh, yes i couldn't help it i was holding that in I, the whole time <laughs> well we appreciate you're holding it in until we made it all the way <laughs> into spoiler space where I, honestly i feel like spoiler space is is kind of a uh, spoilers are thin on the ground here uh, yeah. we are kind of in the middle um, of as a uh, Vord ninety nine pointed out on in the comment section on our website, we are now in the midst of sort of a run of stories that are not particularly arc heavy, and pace wise, that might kind of feel a little bit like a lull. We've got we've got some stories that just don't have a lot to do with a big arc. Right after we get one story that was just super exciting and arc heavy, and oh my gosh, what is what is going on in the sky full of stars? And here we are with with Deathwalker and this and, and a couple more to come. What do you guys think? Is that a lull? Is it does it work? They're spacing it out, right? I mean, this is the rhythm. I think <laughs> I think uh, I think JMS decided I've got these five story points to lace through the first season, and then everything else is going to be standalone because we don't. I, this happens on so many shows now too. I, I was just watching. Um, uh, the first season of Supernatural, and I talked to some fans, and they're like, "Yeah, you can watch it, but there are only like four episodes you need to watch." And that's definitely what's happening here, right? It's like you, you're picking a background, mm-hmm. but so much of this is just like pace it out. We don't want people to get too arc heavy. We're trying to find new viewers right now, so this is a nice standalone episode. Uh, nice if you like dark things, but nice standalone episode, and 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 they're trying to find new people and get them hooked at this point. So uh, I, I just feel like this is. I mean, this is super light with that. So, you know, every fifth episode has an arc component, basically. I I do feel like it's also, we are nowadays watching with a slightly different eye towards it because these days writers write for the box set and we get so many shows like HBO shows and British shows Mm -hmm. that have a much shorter run. So they don't have have to have the padding or they don't have space for the padding. In the 90s, most shows were made like this and that's just sort of how it went. So, I mean, part of me wishes that we could talk to the new folks and be like, like just just hold through more arc is coming but i feel like that's a little bit spoilery um to do that so maybe we'll cover it a little bit after the fact yeah what we what we're not getting in story continuity though i think we're still getting character continuity um you know things are being planted in some of these episodes uh that are going to um make sense down the road uh because of things they started we, we mentioned a little bit uh, beforehand of uh, Franklin, how he's already been shown to be very arrogant, very sure of himself, um, very quick to make a decision on things. And as the pressure ramps up when the shadow war kicks in, well, 
it's going to turn into a very physical downfall for him as well as this sort of mental spiritual Mm -hmm. one when he gets addicted to stims and winds Mm -hmm. up having to, you know, quit the job and go on walkabout and find himself again through his own, well, religious beliefs. (laughs) Yeah, this is the, this is, this is the first real demonstration of his God complex Mm -hmm. that takes us all the way up to 13, 13, 13, 13, (laughs) when he's shouting in the third season at the, at the, in the med lab. So, yeah, this, you can't, I don't think you can have the STEM addiction storyline, believably, without this episode. You need him to be an idealist and and just totally committed and arrogant, and uh, and that's established here. Do we ever really get a clear sense, maybe in that walkabout episode, about what foundationism really is? I mean, it's always kind of hazy to me, but the whole idea is like, Franklin's a kind of religion you haven't heard of, so you can't make any assumptions about what he believes, is sort of the shorthand mm-hmm. I always took it to be. I think I think his ex- explanation, and maybe it was in walkabout, is, is that foundationism is, is a religion where they figure that everybody believes in basically the same God and they're all just looking at it from different angles. So foundationism tries to look at the other religions and take the pieces of, of that, that, that makes sense. So it's, it's kind of a little bit of, it's a religion that dabbles in all of the religions to try to bring them all together um, because they're all, it's a fancy title for agnosticism. <laughs> yeah. You, you know, when you get right down to it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, because, because he, uh, he, he frankly, he frankly disavows um, souls in the yes. in Soul Hunter, and he sort of walks that back a little bit when he's when he when he goes through that um, slightly when he goes through the description of foundationism and talks about all the reflected gods that he's seeing in people's mm-hmm. eyes. So maybe they're being a little loose with that um, throughout the throughout the series. They they decide to refine his philosophy a little bit from that. Um, from his his goddess science um, this time uh, at this point in the series. Yeah, you know, so, I also do find it a little interesting that here we have Franklin making these tough, controversial medical decisions, you know, about this boy's life, um, and he gets bit for it. And, but and then later down the road, he has to make a really tough decision about. Um, uh, on the other side of, of prizing life above all else, the, the you know when Sheridan asks him to mock up the telepaths to use them as, as living weapons, and you know he he kind of makes the opposite choice that that they're not worth saving, and maybe that's a direct result of his experiences here. I don't know, um, and that ends up working out. What I don't know if well is the right answer, but as as well as can be expected. I'm not really sure. If that was an on-purpose thing or if it's just something that I noticed uh, a parallel there. A thought that had occurred to me, um, something else that this episode seems to establish a bit is that Franklin is not the greatest liar in the world. He's not the worst, but when he's trying to make up the story for Sean about the egg and, you know, he gropes for a planet, planet, planet placebo and um, (laughs) things like that. And then... um, yeah, as you said, when he was trying to come up with some procedure to tell the parents and, and the other doctor just looks at him like, really? You know, you, you really said microbeams and um, emulsions. Um, <laughs> later on down the road, when he gets confronted with, you know, he and Marcus have to pretend to be a happily married couple. And he, he blunders through that a little bit <laughs> until he can wrap his brain around it. Uh, just, you know... He, he, when he's out of his comfort zone like that, when when he's out of the boots of authority, uh, he he fumbles a bit. So that, I think that's something that sort of stays character-wise for a long time. So moving beyond uh, Franklin for a bit, is there much else in this story that that sort of are, are, are pointers and seeds for the future? I mean, the only thing that that stood out to me, and and I don't think that this is actually legit, but we get Kasha's sort of cryptic line about how the avalanche has already started and it's it's too late for the pebbles to vote. And I mean, on its on its face. It's the best Kosh line in the entire <laughs> series. And it wasn't even written by JMS. No, it's David yeah, Gerald it, doing it, but it's it so is, Kosh. It is. It is perfect. And I mean, on the, on the face of it, it's it's clearly just that scene is hilariously ironic because the parents are petitioning <laughs> him and asking him to, to help avoid what has already happened to him. So uh, that line is, is perfect and, and makes sense. But I mean, or it could maybe refer to something else that, that Kosh can see that larger events are already in motion sort of on a 
a grander scale, but maybe that's just me stretching and really, really wanting to see a little bit of an arc here where maybe there isn't one. Did anybody else think no, that? I, I always took it to it's be valid, that. valid, I think. Yeah. yeah okay. It can be, I think it can be mm-hmm. read both yeah, ways. I, yeah, I always thought that that was meant to be portentous. This is, you know, science importance, right? I, I think even if David, David Gerald wrote it, obviously he and, and Joe Straczynski talked about this, and it is meant to be like, here's Kosh reminding you things are happening. Um, your pro- your little problems are, in the end are not going to matter because the big things are already happening. And it just adds a little sense of that to what's going on. Uh, but I have always loved that line. That is yeah. one of the best. That is, if not the best in the whole show for Kosh, because it's so cryptic, textbook cryptic. I think most of the other scenes that we see are just kind of continuing to build. Um, You've got the Narns, very quick, abrupt, you know, no, we're not going to do it. There's nothing in it for us. Um, There's Londo spinning a tale of bureaucracy and costs and basically almost flat out asking for a bribe, anything to get these parents to leave him alone because he doesn't want to get involved. Um, Delenn, as Chip said, you know, providing the most measured response um, of all of them, but still the the Mimbari aren't going to get involved. They've got bigger things to worry about. Um, The only other point where, as Chip said um, earlier, is, you know, Ivanova really starting to step into her own. Um, most of most of this that is not centered around Franklin is fairly status quo. Yep. Yeah. Anything <laughs> yep. else, you guys? No, I think we've had a remarkably animated conversation about... Uh, a pretty grim damn episode. <laughs> see? See what can happen when you watch the dark episodes? <laughs> well, we're Very watching true. them all. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you'll come back and, and talk about another one, either dark or happy, your choice somewhere down the road, Jason. Well, I mean, let's we pencil them con- in for confessions and lamentations. <laughs> that's y'all. one of that's one of my all time favorites, it and it is even more depressing than this one. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh. You are such a barrel of laughs, Jason. <laughs> I'm not always like this. There's something about Babylon Five. I think it was because it was subverting so many things that I was used to seeing always the same way in sci-fi in this period on TV, and that that uh, taking that hard path and going dark when Star Trek really didn't want to go dark. Eventually, Deep Space Nine went dark, but at, at this point, Babylon Five was leading the way and saying, "Look, we can go the other way," and and that's what attracted me to those episodes. I don't like everything dark and awful and all that, but boy, I do love. Uh, this episode and and confessions lamentations, which is even more depressing. So I I will make one last uh, comment about the episode is that uh, I I think that you could read into this a certain bit. You know, J- David Gerald's doing this, having been almost kind of sort of the first season showrunner under under uh, Gene Roddenberry for Next Generation, uh, and that did not work out well. No, and he not left, and he comes out and he writes for JMS. Uh, as un-Star Trekky an episode as you can get, or better yet, as as Stephen experienced it, uh, a very Star Trekky episode up until it absolutely isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I think I think David Gerald should feel very vindicated by this episode. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, Jason, again, thank you so much for being with us. I hope uh, hope you've enjoyed your experience here on both sides of the jump gate. I've been listening to every episode, and I'm very glad that you invited me on, and I look forward to listening. You know, re- you realize you're only on disc three of the DVD set now. There's <laughs> no. a long way to go, but I'm looking forward to being on that journey with you. Yeah, Stephen turned to me the other day and said, we're not even halfway through the first season. I feel like we've been watching this forever. <laughs> <laughs> He's already forgotten the first oh, disc episode. Disc three, really? Yep. Just three. Yep. But we'll get there. We will get there. Um, so mm-hmm. to, to that end, folks. <laughs> Dr. Franklin has not it. <laughs> Dr. Franklin remembers the first episode. <laughs> he does, even though he wasn't there. Um, so to to that end, we will see you guys next time and to talk about survivors. Uh, but we want to thank all of you who are listening, going on this journey with us as well. We are happy to have each and every one of you along. Hope to see you online as well. Um, so for now, this is Erica and Edmonton. Shannon and Durham and Chip and Durham and you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5 <laughs>